Welcome to Misty 101 podcast. We hope that you enjoy this episode of our podcast. Didn't kill himself the first time, did Epstein really attempt suicide? U.S. Federal Bureau of Prisons, BOP, documents released to RT Investigative Unit The detail pose serious questions about Jeffrey Epstein's alleged attempt to kill himself while incarcerated in the Metropolitan Correctional Center. The files, released in response to a Freedom of Information request, cast doubt on this key component of the official narrative surrounding his ever-mysterious alleged suicide namely, did it even happen? According to the established timeline of events, Epstein was found injured and semi-conscious on the floor of his cell in the early hours of 23 July, 2019. 17 days after his imprisonment on charges of child sex trafficking, with marks of an unspecified nature around his neck. Claiming to remember nothing about what happened, his cellmate, former NYPD officer Nicholas Tartaglian who has coincidentally shared the same legal representation as Epstein's partner and Madame Ghislaine Maxwell likewise pleaded ignorance. The files show that within minutes of the alleged incident, an attempted suicide by hanging forward slash asphyxiation was officially logged, although sections of the report describing what happened are totally redacted, as is the name of the individual who authored it. In a report written by the doctor who examined Epstein around five hours later, Epstein's own account of how he sustained the injuries is, too, entirely blanked out. The following day, Epstein was taken off suicide watch and charged with violating prison code 228, tattooing or self-mutilation. He was subject to a psychological assessment, with one official suggesting, most likely he will be found competent because he is not mentally ill while another enquired as to whether or not Epstein was mentally capable of proceeding with the disciplinary process. Oddly, in response, an unnamed staffer wrote, I would feel really uncomfortable doing this. Several copies of the incident report are reproduced in the files, but it wasn't until a week later, on 30 July, that the document was amended to include self-mutilation as the cause of suicide attempt, specifying lacerations. But the doctor's report from just hours after the incident doesn't mention lacerations at all in fact it explicitly states none were found begging the question of why this was written into the official record days later. Pending investigation for that breach, Epstein was placed in disciplinary confinement away from the general population and refused to be returned there. Meanwhile, officials probed appropriate candidates for a new cellmate. A thorough review was clearly conducted, with one memo noting that other inmates in the secure housing unit were deemed not appropriate to be housed with Mr. Epstein for reasons unstated, although one notable prisoner with a history of sex offences was explicitly ruled out due to his threatening nature. After the psychological evaluation found him competent to take part in the disciplinary process, the files record the prison's brief investigation into the self-mutilation charge, on 30 July. A resultant report noted that, no witnesses, were, requested and inmate Epstein had a poor attitude refusing to say anything. Despite this, 
the investigator concluded the report to be accurate as written and the charge warranted. The matter was kicked upstairs for further disposition but it appears Epstein died before a final decision on his supposed infraction was taken. Even more curiously, a classified internal BOP memo notes that the incident report related to self-mutilation was expunged in other words stricken from the record, as if it never happened five days after Epstein's death. An official added that it was unclear why it had been expunged and whether Mr. Epstein knew this. This may account for why the entire bizarre episode, in which prison authorities sought to punish the billionaire sex offender for the crime of trying to take his own life, has never hitherto been mentioned by the mainstream media. Complicating the confused picture even further, on 14 August, 2019, four days after his death, the New York Post published a sensational exclusive claiming that Epstein informed his lawyers Tartaglian roughed him up and this was not only the reason he was discovered out cold in his cell, but why he was removed from suicide watch. Tartaglian's lawyer, Bruce Barkett, has vigorously disputed this account, suggesting the story was planted in the post by a prison guard angry at Epstein for complaining at the deplorable conditions at the Metropolitan Correctional Center. Moreover, Barkett records that Epstein and Tartaglian regularly walked from their cell to the visiting area together as their lawyers were on the same schedule and the pair got along real well. I'd be surprised if they later claimed Nick attacked him, because that's not what we were told all along Barkett has declared. The records released to the detail make it abundantly clear that Epstein did indeed complain frequently to prison authorities. However, his grievances were fairly routine a lack of toilet paper, the toilet flushing continuously for 45 minutes, his cellmate talking too much, especially at night. There isn't the slightest indication he ever felt threatened or in danger, either from inmates or guards. This may in part result from him being placed for much of his stay with the hulking Tartaglian. A veritable man-mountain. He faces the death penalty for allegedly committing a quadruple homicide in furtherance of a conspiracy to sell cocaine one victim was strangled with a zip tie. He was chosen to bunk with Epstein due to cooperating with authorities in his case, and having much to lose if he committed an infraction of any kind, let alone attacked his cellmate. Such pally protection may moreover to some degree account for why, in several psychological assessments at the prison in the wake of his apparent suicide attempt, Epstein was a picture of optimism and stability. One noted the subject was alert, polite, calm, and cooperative in demeanor and explicitly denied recent and current suicidal ideation, planning, and intent. He was said to be future-oriented and expressed a commitment to life and safety, agreeing to contact staff immediately should he experience suicidal ideation or psychological distress. He exhibited a neutral effect with appropriate range. Eye contact and hygiene were appropriate. His thoughts were organized and coherent, with no loosening of associations or tangential, circumstantial or irrelevant content a prison-designated psychologist wrote. 
there was no evidence of perceptual disturbance, delusional ideation, or a formal thought disorder. He did not engage in any bizarre or inappropriate behavior. Another appraisal spelled out protective factors determined from conversations with Epstein, noting he he denied current suicidal or self-harm thoughts or feeling hopeless. He denied fearing for his safety. He stated he lives for and plans to finish this case and to go back to his normal life. His friends and lawyers are emotionally supportive. He is Jewish, and, suicide is against the religion. Overall, his current protective factors override his risk factors for suicidality they remarked. Suicide watch is not warranted at this time. Despite this, Epstein was briefly placed on suicide watch, and the documents show detailed accounts were filed every 15 minutes by guards as to his activities inmate Epstein is sleeping, inmate Epstein is lying quietly in bed, inmate Epstein is pacing around in his cell etc. This intensive surveillance was downgraded on 24 July, 2019, to the lesser psychological observation. Six days later, Tartaglian was replaced by Efrain Reyes, who was assisting the government in a drug distribution conspiracy case, although on August 9, he too was removed, leaving Epstein alone in breach of internal procedures, and despite the classified files making clear the urgent need for a new cellmate was communicated between day and evening watch shifts at the jail. The next day, he was dead. Contemporary news reports noted his associates were surprised at the news, as the prolific paedophile seemed recently to be in good spirits leading them to express concern about the possibility of foul play. Regular half-hour checks on the inmate also ceased, contrary to standard procedure, as designated guards Tova Noel and Michael Thomas spent substantial portions of shift at their desk, browsing the internet and moving around the common area, mere meters away from Epstein's cell. Moreover, two cameras in the vicinity apparently malfunctioned, while a third in the adjacent hallway was also corrupted. Some footage in some areas is said to exist, but has not been released publicly. Noel and Thomas subsequently admitted to fabricating log entries, and were charged with lying on prison records. A serious crime indeed, but on 13 December, 2020, the charges were summarily dropped. This wasn't disclosed publicly until 30 December, though a day after Maxwell was found guilty of recruiting and trafficking young girls for sexual abuse. Strikingly, in its reporting on the prison's psychological assessments of Epstein, the New York Times framed the prolific sex offender's insistence he had no intention whatsoever of committing suicide as a testament to his life of manipulation immense skill at deceiving others, and endless ability to create illusions. Another obvious interpretation, apparently unconsidered by America's purported paper of record, is that his denial of suicidal intentions and hopefulness about the future could well have been sincere and his death may thus be attributable to external actors and factors unknown. Killers of Hero General Must Face Justice, Iranian President
In his first interview to international television, Iranian President Ibrahim Raisi told RT he sincerely meant what he said about the killers of General Qasim Soleimani having to face a proper international trial, calling the slain general a hero of the entire Muslim world for fighting against Islamic State, is, formerly ISIS, terrorists in Iraq and Syria. Soleimani not only belonged to the people of Iran, he belonged to the Muslim community Razi told RT's Murad Gazdiev in an exclusive interview that aired on Thursday. All people, both Muslims and non-Muslims, of course, have great respect for his work, because they know that he was able to save people from the attacks of the enemies of humanity, namely, ISIS, and tack fiery factions he added, using the Arabic term for heretics from Islam. Soleimani's service in Syria and Iraq was aimed at fighting terrorism. He was there to save people's lives. Everyone in the world knows this Razi said. Therefore, Qasim Soleimani is a hero. The general, who commanded the Quds force of the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, IRGC, was visiting Baghdad in January 2020 when he was assassinated by a US drone strike. In retaliation, Iran fired missiles at several military bases in Iraq hosting U.S. troops. On the second anniversary of Soleimani's death, Razi said Iran would exact revenge unless those responsible face an international tribunal. The one who commits such a great crime and confesses to this crime, naturally, should be punished in court Razi told RT. The promise to protect the oppressed and punish the oppressors is, of course, a sincere promise, and it will certainly be kept. Elected President of Iran in 2021, Razi previously served as Attorney General and Chief Justice of the Islamic Republic. Is the plan to bankrupt Russia working? Economic coercion is the West's favorite tool to influence Russian behavior. But with oil prices rising, Russia's economy growing, and the West backing off from pledges to exclude Russia from SWIFT, this policy seems to have reached a dead end. In 2014, the Russian economy was struck by a double whammy. First, the oil price collapsed. And second, Western states imposed a series of sanctions in response to events in Ukraine. The immediate impact on Russia's economy was dire, sending GDP plummeting. Economists had problems determining which was more responsible for Russia's problems the oil price or the sanctions but most came down in favor of the former. Cheaper oil translated into a less valuable rubble, which increased the price of imports and created inflationary pressures. To this end, the central bank responded with higher interest rates depressing demand and thereby GDP. The economic crisis of 2014 created hopes in the West that Russia could be brought to its knees. Pundits predicted that cheap oil was here to stay. Beyond that, the introduction of so-called sectoral sanctions, targeting Russia's energy, financial, and military industries, was meant to strangle what were seen as the most vital sectors of the Russian economy. It would not be long before Russia would be bankrupt, some claimed. Speaking in Ottawa in November, 2014, 
Former Russian Finance Minister Mikhail Kasyanov stated that within two years, Russia would have used up all its financial reserves and would have to severely cut government spending. The Russian people would then turn away from the government en masse. In the face of cheap oil and sanctions, the Putin regime was doomed. It didn't turn out that way. Sanctions had a rather marginal impact on the Russian economy. The government responded effectively by important substitution, providing financial aid to threatened sectors, and finding new sources of much-needed technologies, most notably China. This came at a price, but Russia weathered the sanctions storm quite well. Rather than declining, Russian oil and gas production has remained steady. Moreover, the price of hydrocarbons has rebounded. This week, Goldman Sachs issued a prediction that oil would reach $100 a barrel by the end of the year, as the world economy recovers from the COVID-induced recession, and demand for oil and plastics increases. Suddenly, the picture is looking very different from what it did in 2014. In fact, the Russian government is flush with cash. Russia's international currency reserves hit a record high of $600 billion last year. Meanwhile, the country's debt in relation to GDP is one of the lowest in the world especially given that, much like other former Soviet states, much of its GDP is uncounted, off the books in the black and grey economies. This compares very favourably to Western states who have borrowed on a massive scale during the Covid pandemic and are afloat in a sea of debt. It's the West that is looking bankrupt, not Russia. That's not to say that all is well with the Russian economy. Inflation has risen to 8%, and the World Bank predicts that GDP growth will slow from 4.3% in 2021 to 2.4% in 2022. This is far below the rate Russia needs in order to catch up economically with the West. Still, it is growth, not decline. The Russian economy suffered much less than many other countries during the Covid pandemic and has recovered faster. Russia is perhaps not doing well, but it's not doing immensely badly either. All this undermines Western sanctions policy. If the purpose of sanctions was to punish, they haven't succeeded. If it was to deter Russia from further aggressive acts against Ukraine, then it's impossible to prove that they haven't worked, given that one doesn't know what would have happened in a universe without sanctions, but one has to doubt it. Given Russia's success in riding out past sanctions, Russia has less reason to worry about them in the future. It has also reduced its dependency on the West. The deterrent value of sanctions is weak. Unfortunately, rather than recognizing the pointlessness of sanctions, many in the West are now doubling down on them, allegedly as a means to deter Russia from invading Ukraine. Top of the list of proposed measures is excluding Russia from the SWIFT system that underpins international trade by facilitating financial transfers. If put into practice, this would make it very difficult for Russia to sell goods and services abroad, and as such it would be potentially very harmful. The problem, however, 
is that it would harm many Western countries too. The Russians aren't going to hand over oil and gas for free. If Russia were excluded from SWIFT, European countries that depend on Russian supplies, such as Germany, would find themselves deprived of energy to heat their homes and power their industries. American LNG could not make up the difference. Understandably, therefore, people are having second thoughts. On Monday, the newspaper Handelsblatt reported that the German government had decided SWIFT should not be part of any future sanctions against Russia. If this is true, then the most significant threat against Russia has been removed. In any case, were Russia to decide to invade Ukraine, it would be because a decision had been made that vital national interests were at stake. At that point, only military threats could deter the Kremlin from action, not economic ones. But Western states have ruled out fighting to defend Ukraine. In short, the idea that Russia can be deterred is a fallacy. In practice, all these threats do is annoy. For some in the West, that's enough. Writing on Saturday in the Toronto Star, veteran anti-Russia campaigners Bill Browder and Marcus Kolger claimed that the fact Putin was annoyed by sanctions was proof they were working. But this is a silly argument. Sanctions are meant to change the target's behavior in a way that suits the sanctioner. But it's hard to see how angering your target translates into him behaving in a way that suits you. More likely, the result is the opposite. The past few years show that the idea Russia can be economically coerced into political concessions, or so crippled that its population rises up against the government, is completely mistaken. Western policy is thus at an impasse. Today Russia enjoys high oil prices, vast reserves in the bank, and the knowledge that the West can't follow through with its worst threats without severely damaging itself. Western threats are not, therefore, very meaningful. If we want Russia to act in a manner more suiting our own interests, we need to find a new approach. Salt BAE baffles fans after swapping out posh restaurant for building site in bizarre video. The chef known as Salt BAE has baffled his millions of fans once again after swapping out his lavish restaurant for a building site. The owner of notoriously expensive Knightsbridge Steakhouse Nusrit appears to be back in Dubai, after posting footage of him wearing a building hat, surrounded by construction workers. Now a millionaire with steakhouses all across the globe, chef, real name Nusret Gok, has apparently shared the secret to his success. Posting the video to his 41.7 million Instagram followers, he wrote, People always ask me how I succeeded. This is how. The video has racked up more than 400,000 likes with thousands of comments from his loyal fans. Many of them are in support, but others are baffled. One wrote, Did Salt BAE used to be a builder? A second joked, I didn't know he had a second job as a builder. A third chimed in, Strange. In one bizarre clip, Salt BAE can be seen wheeling a wheelbarrow as fast as he can while drillers carry out construction work. Then, wearing a luminous orange vest, 
he is filmed serving dinner to dozens of employees at the site during lunchtime. Salt BAE became an internet sensation back in 2017 due to his eye-catching style and unique kitchen skills. He later became the owner of Newsrit Steakhouse chain. He worked as a chef in the USA and Argentina before returning to his original birthplace Turkey, where he opened his first branch in 2010. The chain has since expanded across the globe and now has branches in New York, Miami, Mykonos, Abu Dhabi, Dubai, and Doha, as well as in London. He first shot to fame when a video from his restaurant's Twitter account went viral, showing the chef sprinkling salt in a theatrical manner. It racked up millions of views and turned him into an internet star, and he now has tens of millions of followers for his restaurant on Instagram. Canadian restaurant forced to close after it is caught taking dog photos instead of vaccine passes. A Canadian restaurant was temporarily shut down after it was caught accepting dog photos instead of proof of vaccination against COVID-19 or a negative test. The Granary Kitchen in Red Deer was ordered to close by Alberta Health Services last Friday after the department initiated an investigation on the 11th of January following complaints about the restaurant. The health agency said they sent two test diners on different occasions into the restaurant who were able to enter the dining room by showing their ID and a photo of a dog instead of a vaccine pass or a negative test. Restaurants and bars in Alberta are required to ask those over the age of 12 to show proof of vaccination, a negative test from the last three days, or proof of a medical exemption. The seven-day average of new daily cases has recently skyrocketed in Canada from 3,400 on 10 December to 46,750 on 10 January, according to data from Johns Hopkins University. In both instances, facility staff used a tablet to make it appear as if they were scanning a QR code when in fact the staff member was presented with a photograph of a dog Alberta Health Services said. The staff member then proceeded to ask the test shopper for personal identification and offered dine-in services. The indoor dining room at the Granary Kitchen was ordered closed until the owner could ensure that the restaurant would comply with Alberta restrictions. The eatery had to train their staff in how to enforce the rules, and the owners had to attend an administrative hearing with environmental public health to show that they were in compliance. To our valued guests, we had an unfortunate circumstance at our front door which involved one of our underage hostesses and the requirements for the rep program the restaurant wrote on Facebook on Friday. We are taking the weekend to retrain and regroup. We look forward to serving you again as soon as we are ready to reopen. In closing, we would like to remind everyone of the tremendous pressure being placed on front staff, and please remember to be kind they added. The order to close the indoor dining area was rescinded on Monday via a letter from the health department, and the restaurant reopened its doors the same day. One of the owners of the restaurant, Patrick Mackin, told CNN on Wednesday that the health authorities were very pleased with the measures taken by the Granary Kitchen. 
These are difficult time for restaurants in Canada and abroad Mr. Mackin said. We look forward to better days ahead for the industry as a whole. This was a staff issue and not a company policy Mr. Mackin told the Red Deer Advocate on Friday, adding that the issue had already been addressed. No way for Putin to de-escalate on Ukraine, says former head of Me6. A former Me6 chief has conceded he cannot see a scenario where Vladimir Putin will back down amid fears of a Russian invasion of Ukraine. Sir Alex Younger, who served as chief of the Secret Intelligence Service from 2014 to 2020, told the BBC's Today programme the Russian president was playing poker rather than chess to create options for himself. But he added, at the moment I cannot see a scenario where he can back down in a way that satisfies the expectations that he, Putin, has created. It feels dangerous and it's clearly getting more dangerous. It's hard to see a safe landing zone given the expectations that President Putin has created. Russia has been warned it will be swiftly hit with an unprecedented package of sanctions in the event of a fresh incursion in Ukraine after Boris Johnson joined Joe Biden and world leaders to present a united front to combat a feared invasion. The Prime Minister and the US President met virtually with the leaders of NATO, the EU, Italy, Poland, France and Germany on Monday evening as they hoped to avert what Mr Johnson warned would be a bloody and protracted conflict for Moscow. 8.53am. Show of strength needed, says Brown. Gordon Brown has said a show of strength is needed to face down Russian President Vladimir Putin over a possible fresh incursion in Ukraine. The former Prime Minister recalled that, during his dealings with Mr Putin, the Russian leader had said he would not cooperate in any way. He told ITV's Good Morning Britain, you have to be able to stand up to him. Remember the assassinations on British soil. He was going to assassinate other people if we hadn't stood up to him. The only thing that Putin understands is strength. Perhaps belatedly, the right thing to do is a show of strength from NATO and unity from NATO, and that is something that has got to be fought for and making it clear that we will not accept Russian incursions. I think it will be financial and economic sanctions that are going to have to be so severe that the Russian autocrats the Russian oligarchs and Putin himself and his government is affected by them. 8.39 AM Russia is succeeding in sowing panic in Ukraine. Russia is succeeding in sowing panic in Ukraine, a top security official said, as the Ukrainian president called for calm amid escalating tensions between Russia and the West. Moscow is trying to sow panic said Oleksiy Danilov. Secretary of Ukraine's National Security and Defense Council, following an emergency meeting of the body last night. Russia's number one task is to undermine the internal situation in our country. And today, regrettably, they are succeeding very well. He said that more than 100,000 Russian troops remain stationed near his country's border but called for calm as he did not believe Moscow was ready to launch a full-scale invasion. If it did, Ukraine would be ready to defend itself, Mr. Danilov said. Ukraine is ours alone, 
we are not going to give it to anyone, and victory will be ours. 8.31 AM Germany cannot lead on Russian issue because of failed attempts at peace. Germany cannot lead on the West's response to Russia because talks led by the country over the last eight years have not been fruitful, Olust Finishina, Ukraine's deputy prime minister has said. I don't think that Germany can now lead on the Russian issue because it effectively has been leading the Normandy format over the past eight years and this has not resulted in any peaceful settlement she told Yorktiv. Talks in the Normandy format between Germany, Russia, Ukraine and France, have stalled since November. They began after the eruption of the conflict in eastern Ukraine in 2014. Stefanischina added that in this time of crisis, the long-lasting rhetoric of Germans not willing to irritate Russia has become too materialized. It has been put on the top of the list not the interests of Ukraine, not peaceful settlement not efforts of Ukraine to stabilize its economy, but our willingness to irritate Russia. 8.18 AM Boris Johnson, intelligence suggests lightning war. Mr Johnson said on Monday that gloomy intelligence suggested Russia was planning a lightning raid on Kyiv, prompting the order for British embassy staff and their families to begin leaving the Ukrainian capital. The Prime Minister said, the intelligence is very clear that there are 60 Russian battle groups on the borders of Ukraine. The plan for a lightning war that could take out Kyiv is one that everybody can see. We need to make it very clear to the Kremlin, to Russia, that that would be a disastrous step. He warned that the people of Ukraine would resist any invasion and from a Russian perspective, it is going to be a painful, violent and bloody business, he said, adding. I think it's very important that people in Russia understand that this could be a new Chechnya. Reflecting on Mr. Biden's misspoken suggestion that a minor incursion may result in a more measured response by the US and its allies, Mr. Johnson said, any incursion, of any kind, of any dimension, into Ukraine is not going to be a cost-free business adding, there will be casualties. 8.06 AM Joe Biden prepares troops. Joe Biden, the U.S. president, was preparing to send thousands of U.S. troops to Eastern Europe and the Baltic states on Monday to deter a Russian invasion of Ukraine. Amid growing tension, the Pentagon announced that 8,500 U.S.-based soldiers were on heightened alert for deployment in the region after weeks of restraint. In a video conference call with European leaders, Mr. Biden discussed the possible mobilization of thousands of troops to NATO member states bordering Russia, with a further 45,000 on standby if the situation continues to deteriorate. NATO ramped up its response to Russian aggression, sending warships and fighter aircraft to shore up its eastern flank. Jens Stoltenberg, NATO's Secretary General said more troops could also soon be deployed to countries near Ukraine. The additional battle groups would be unlikely to enter Ukraine in an event of a Russian invasion, but protect NATO members on its fringes. In a marked shift in strategy, the US said it was prepared to boost 4,600 NATO troops already in Estonia, Lithuania, 
Latvia and Poland before any further Russian activity. Previously, the US had threatened to mobilize only if Russian troops crossed into Ukraine. Inside the top-secret tank base that provides Ukraine's best hope of defense against Russia. The soldier's telephone rang and he was given new orders, turning us around, then taking a sharp right down another track where a car was waiting for us. As we appeared in his rearview mirror the driver in the nondescript car moved off, and the soldier was told to follow. I've never been here before, I've no idea where we are headed he explained. We had already been told we couldn't film anything that could identify our location. No signposts, no distinguishing countryside, not even electricity pylons. We were being taken to a top-secret base in the middle of nowhere, a camp inside a wood in the Donetsk region of eastern Ukraine. For the first time, a news organization had been granted permission to visit one of the most important locations to the Ukrainian military right now. We pulled up and then trudged through the snow to what appeared to be a series of wooden shacks hidden in the forest, smoke rising from thin tin chimneys. Ukraine's best defense against Russia. An armed soldier standing on the inside of a locked and strangely intricate metal garden gate told us to wait and then radioed inside. A few minutes later we were allowed in to be greeted by senior officers. Inside the camp, soldiers were drawing up into units and being given instructions by officers. We were then escorted through the base to an area where a series of sloping bunkers, covered in branches of cut-down trees, dipped into the ground. Peeking out of the branches was the enormous barrel of a tank. This base, which stretches four miles through the forest, is the Ukrainian military's best hope of defense against a Russian invasion, a tank battalion on standby to fight. Soon after our arrival, soldiers started removing the branches and the tank engines roared into life. They are T-80B1V tanks powered by gas turbine engines that deafeningly sound like jet engines. Ukraine preparing for all possibilities. One by one they were gunned out of their snow-covered bunkers and, in a cacophony of sound and spraying mud, made their way to an open plain. As the tension continues to grow over a potential Russian invasion, the tank crews are undergoing intense training and inspection. The tanks are usually concealed in miles of snowy forest. The crews here are working on evasion tactics knowing that they'll likely be outgunned by the Russian forces' more sophisticated equipment, and more importantly its sheer numbers. These tanks, all modified in the city of Kharkiv here in the east, are widely regarded as better than the ones used by the Russians and the Ukrainian military has been taking delivery of as many as they can get since the separatist uprising in Donetsk and the Russian annexation of Crimea in 2014. Maxim Nazarenko, one of the tank troop commanders here, told me they're preparing for all possibilities. Our training has intensified. Troops are being strengthened, supervision of equipment is being strengthened, everything comes down to that. Personnel are being trained, equipment is being prepared. Everyone is in enhanced mode, in standby mode. 
Ukraine ready despite concerns. He told me they are aware of the realities of facing up to the Russian army, but that they are ready and determined to give them a proper answer if their territory is compromised. There are always concerns, even in times when there is no war. And, of course, there are concerns now as well. But in order to reduce it, we fulfill different standards, prepare, and improve our skills to fight the enemy. We watch on as the tanks carve up the earth, maneuvering from their hideouts through mud, ice and snow. It's pretty much frozen here already, both armies could easily find themselves easily bogged down. Experts don't believe that if an invasion takes place, it will be an actual World War II type scenario, with tank battles in open plains. Tactics and missile systems are very different now. But in the current uncertainty of what may happen absolutely nothing can be ruled out. Major snowstorm hits Greece and Turkey causing travel chaos. Greek drivers who were trapped in their cars as a result of heavy snow are to be offered €2,000 each in compensation as extreme weather caused chaos in Greece and Turkey. Kyrikos Mitsotakis, the Greek Prime Minister, contacted the Highways Authority and ordered the money to be made available as a massive cold front swept across the region. In Athens, Rescue crews freed around 200 to 300 drivers who were trapped on a major road that links the capital with the international airport. Some drivers abandoned their cars while others spent the night inside their vehicles. Others trekked to a nearby train station and managed to board a train that made it through the snow on Tuesday. It was a very difficult night and we faced unprecedented conditions said Christus Stylionides the Civil Protection and Climate Change Minister. I want to again express an apology from the state for all the difficulties that the, stranded, drivers faced. In Istanbul, heavy snowfall blocked roads and flights had to be suspended at Istanbul airport after the roof of a cargo facility collapsed from the weight of the snow. In Italy, seven migrants, reported to be Bangladeshis froze to death aboard a boat that landed on the island of Lampedusa after crossing the Mediterranean from Libya. Again a tragedy, again we cry for innocent victims said Toto Martello, the mayor of the tiny island, which lies south of Sicily. We hope that you have enjoyed our podcast we thank you for your support. We hope to see you again next time.